could be the best news we could possibly hear that Jesus is coming again soon to us. And uh, I want to encourage you over the next couple of weeks to continue spending time in the book of Daniel. We're going to return to the uh, Daniel Sermon Plan series on Sunday the 28th. But today we're going to have a uh, continue in our special Palm Sunday celebration. And next Sunday, uh, please come back and please invite a friend or a neighbor or several for our Resurrection Sunday. We get started. We have breakfast at 9 a.m., followed by uh, 10 a.m. service, no Sunday school. And there'll be some singing. And we want you all to come back for that. It's going to be a very special time together. And speaking of singing, if you didn't know this about me, I'm kind of a music geek. I'm kind of a music guy. If you haven't picked up on that over the last few years of uh, me, be, me being up here doing my thing from uh, the pulpit, I, I do have a little bit of an interest in music, and this is how bad it really gets. If you were to ask me how well I remember the events of September 11. I will tell you, I remember that day quite well. I was sitting uh, actually in a classroom, Indiana University, South Bend. I heard the news, people talking about planes and towers, and the thing that was going in my head as I was sitting there absorbing this was uh, the new Bob Dylan album that had just been released that morning that I had picked up on the way. So before everything changed and got serious, that was, you know, the pre-thought for the morning. So I'm known to associate life events with record releases. My wife can ask me about a particular event or error in our lives together, and I'll tell her, I remember that time in our lives together quite well. Honey, I was listening to a lot of post-bop jazz. And she just, okay. Back in high school, the other kids were caught up in track meets and football games, and I was going to record stores. So when Palm Sunday arrives and the thought comes to my mind of a king riding into Jerusalem, I think of, do we have it up there? I believe we have it up there next. Uh, on the, there it is. I think of this for, you know, 10 seconds or so. Uh, the Eric Clapton Blues album from 2000 titled Riding with the King. Don't you? I mean, doesn't this pop into your mind? And now this album, by the way, is named not just for the cover art, which shows uh, the blues guitarist sitting in the front seat of this, uh, we'll say it's a cool Cadillac convertible, right? But for the fact that it's also, uh, you can tell from the picture, it's collaborative work with the late blues guitarist B.B. King. The picture, uh, in the picture, Eric Clapton is literally riding with the king. You see B.B.'s in the back seat of the car. Kind of clever, right? Riding in style, riding with the king. Now, I wonder with this picture if, uh, this is a fashion that stylish as this looks maybe isn't even fancy enough for some kings. But this morning, in contrary to this, right, we gather together to witness a different kind of riding into town with the king. And not just any king, not even B.B. King, but King Jesus, the king of all, whose scripture uh, demonstrates would establish not just any kingdom, but the very kingdom of God. Now, I think about this, think about the way we, we think about royalty or pseudo-royalty coming into town. How would you expect Jesus to have come into Jerusalem a couple thousand years ago? Maybe in a Cadillac, whatever, whatever the equivalent was of the day. I, I guess that time period isn't known for its Cadillacs. They were maybe a little hard to come by in ancient Judea. But this was King Jesus. 
coming into town in a way that would show the people his importance, right? Why not? Why not? That's a logical assumption for us today if we didn't know what the Bible said about him. This really isn't that unusual. There's a reason why it's kind of in our mindset. Over the ages, see, the entry of a ruler or his representative into a city was typically followed by a procession, a fancy celebration. That monarch or prince, uh, like B.B., would ride into town in style. Henry VI of England was carried on a bed supported on six lances by servants. December 1431, Henry VI to be crowned king. When he arrived at Paris, not only did he receive large red bannering, constructed hearts on his caravan from which doves were released, but an overhead canopy embroidered with gold lilies was placed over the king as part of his royal entry. Because he was a big deal. This was royalty. A grand procession, such as the one that uh, followed King Isabeau of Bavaria in 1509, featured the blaring of trumpets, the firing of artillery. Servants and local guild members would, would uh, dress up in special uniforms just for the occasion, just for this ride into town. Special music might even be composed for a prince or a king entering a city during the Middle Ages, announcing they had arrived. And during the time of Christ, an emperor would be formally welcomed into the capital city by the celebration of Adventus, which means glorious entry. And glorious it was. Caesar himself would be mounted on a magnificent white horse in his finest battle armor. And this is where we got the idea of Advent. In the case of Christ, the coming of a king, unlike other kings, was fully man and fully God. What kind of triumphal entry did Jesus Christ decide was fit for the king? Shouldn't surprise us either, based on what we know Scripture says about him. Look with me, Luke chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 29 to 40. This is riding with the king when it comes to King Jesus. We heard from Matthew earlier. This is the way Luke has the narrative. Verse 29. When he, he being Jesus, when he drew new to Bethphage and or drew near, excuse me, to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. Wow. Verse 36. 
And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. Verse 38, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. I love those words. And that's the end of our text this morning. And the question stands for us in his humility. Think back to what we know about Jesus when he came to us. Kind of helps us answer that question. WWJR, what would Jesus ride? <laughs> Scripture says a colt. I would have guessed a Ford car because Acts chapter 2 says his believers were all of one accord. You also said you were going to bring a tomato. I knew that. I knew you were. Let's dig deeper into our text. As our story belong, uh, begins this morning, Jesus has come into town with his disciples, his followers. They're probably being followed by the crowds. Picture the scene. It's been exciting. Jesus uh, had done so much in his ministry, it was hard to know what to expect from him. It was getting close to Passover. Before obtaining this ride into town, it is likely that Jesus had journeyed from Jericho to verse 29, this Beth page means house of figs is the meaning of this word. It was a village very close to the city of Jerusalem. Today, we don't know exactly where it was located. Verse 29 also mentions Olivet. We might know that better, and text confirms this uh, uh, just a few words later, as the Mount of Olives. You can think of it as the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is about a mile long. It's about 700 feet high. It overlooks the city of Jerusalem. If you get to just the right points on the Mount of Olives, you could see almost every part of the city of Jerusalem through the three peaks. Impressive. And at this point in the story, we're told that Jesus sends two disciples to the village, uh, possibly Bethphage, but maybe Bethany. He tells the disciples that immediately they will find a cult, C-O-L-T, cult there. In the Gospel of Matthew, which we heard from earlier in chapter 21, Matthew gives us a few more details. He confirms Bethphage as the most likely village in which the two disciples entered. Matthew also mentions there is a mother donkey along with a cult available and that the disciples are instructed to take them both. And if you're confused by what appears to be a conflicting account in Matthew 21 or in Mark 11 or in John 12, the other uh, scriptures, the parallel accounts, don't be. Uh, if you're thinking the Bible contradicts itself in some places by mentioning Jesus had one donkey and in others he had two, there's another solution to this conundrum. Either one of two things is happening between these accounts. Uh, number one, jo uh, Jesus rode on the big donkey for part of the journey down the Mount of Olives and up the hill to the entrance of Jerusalem, and then he jumped on the little donkey to actually go into the city. That's a possibility. Or second option, Jesus only rode the one donkey and Matthew was just uh, filling in some extra details. But no matter how the two donkeys play into the story of Jesus riding the one, we can know one thing is for sure. This is how Jesus comes to town. On a donkey. 
What would you expect? This was no ride across the desert on a fine Arab charger. Just imagine being these two disciples, not even obtaining a secondhand chariot for their fearless leader. What kind of king did they think they were following? Maybe it's uh, less startling to us today to hear about this entry. We, we have a reminder from the Gospel of Matthew that it's exactly Jesus' right of choice that signified him as king of the kingdom of God. He, he chose that. Matthew 21, verse 4. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. So, like we sang this morning out of Zion's Hill, salvation truly comes. Amen. Earlier in our Bibles, we find this Old Testament book of prophecy, Zechariah, containing these very words. These very words Matthew quotes. But when you get right down to it, realistically, we're, we're still expecting the Cadillac, right? But that's not how Jesus Christ ever came to us. As one commentator notes, this was a jarring prophecy because humility is not in the nature of kings. Kings rode into cities on war horses with displays of power. The humility of Jesus that is on display here, as well as his intentions for his people. Come to us on a donkey. The commentary continues, a war horse signals the promise for battle. A donkey suggests the work of peace. There's biblical precedent for this in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 33. Solomon rides a donkey on the day he is made a king. There are other instances, 2 Samuel 16, 2, Judges 5, 10, in which rulers rode donkeys. Believe it or not, it really wasn't that strange that Jesus directed his disciples to do this from a biblical perspective. Somewhere along the line, somebody probably got the message kind of declaration that I come in peace comes from anyone but King Jesus. Could you picture, for example, so many of, of our leaders, maybe even our, our American presidents riding into Washington, not with the top down, not with the wave, uh, not with that peace thing. I can't really do it right now, but, you know. Sitting on the back of a loner donkey that had never even been ridden before. I can't picture that out of any of them, not even the good ones. Maybe Carter, if somebody was taking pictures. Otherwise, not too likely. Because that's not how we present ourselves in this top-to-bottom world from a position of authority. That's not the message that befits the leaders of this world, but Christ's kingdom isn't of this world. Author Robert Craybill calls the kingdom of Jesus the upside-down kingdom because unlike earthly kingdoms, Christ isn't top to bottom. It isn't a hierarchy. It starts at the bottom and works its way up. Unlike the kings of earth, one commentary notes, Jesus Christ comes not to conquer by force, but by service and self-sacrifice for his people. This is a different kind of animal altogether. Warhorse declares a hostile takeover. Anger. We're ready to fight. 
King Jesus rides into town in peace for us to ride along with him. And how was this message of peace received? Read on with me. Let's, let's jump back into uh, verse 36 of our text from Luke. We'll look at this again. As he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. King Jesus is here. The crowd is excited. This isn't Henry VI, but there's still quite a fanfare afoot. The message of Christ's intentions has been received. Cloaks have been removed for the donkey to show honor like the people would do for their king. Israel did for King Jehu in 2 Kings 9.13. In Matthew 21.8, we are told that the crowd starts cutting down branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. This was customary at the time. Waving branches was a way of expressing the joy of the people. In John 12, 13, we are told there are palm branches. These were seen as a symbol or a sign of victory. Waving uh, the branches, the people began praising God. Verse 37, calling out Hosanna, a word that is both a praise as well as a cry of salvation. Imagine the scene, imagine the excitement. But not everybody was a fan. And I don't mean that like Kyle Eidelman not a fan. I mean, they really weren't fans. Our story concludes in verses 39 and 40. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. See, some of the people didn't like Jesus or the donkey he came to town on. Some of the people didn't like how Jesus was shaking things up for them. In fact, less than a week later, Jesus would continue to shake things up so much that he would, in fact, save his people, but not on, a war not on a war horse. Peaceably speaking, Jesus Christ was going to save his people by going to the cross of Calvary. But that crowd, that, that same crowd, the crowd that on Palm Sunday was shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, the Bible tells us, would just a few days later be crying out, Crucify him! Luke chapter 23. And so King Jesus, not under a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns, would suffer and die for the sins of the world so that the world could experience eternal peace. Well, what in the world was wrong with those people, right? Why the 180? Someone writes, if we would be too critical of Jerusalem for their actions... Ask yourself this question. What city today would not be shaken by Jesus entering into it? Imagine Jesus coming into New York or London or Washington or Detroit. San Francisco. How would we respond? We might welcome Jesus with some hosannas at first anyway. We'd probably line the streets. We'd strike up the band and have a grand parade right down Main Street. But I'm equally sure that by the end of the week, we'd have nailed him to a cross too. Why? Because the kingdom Jesus came to establish still threatens the kingdoms of the world. Your kingdom and my kingdom. The kingdoms where greed, power, and lust rule instead of love, grace, and mercy. 
And here's the part of our story we need focus in on this morning as we celebrate this triumphal entry into Jerusalem, not just today, not just on every Palm Sunday, but every day. Because just like those people, the people at the time of Christ, we have to decide in the time we're given, which is now, for time, if we want to have Jesus as our king too, don't we? What's difficult is that this has to go far beyond the good times when we feel like shouting, Hosanna. Times in our lives when it's easy to say God is good because the sun is shining and life doesn't hurt much. But the shouts of blessed is the king, the hosannas, have to continue from our lips even when we feel like the Lord is allowing us more valleys for the journey than mountaintops. If Jesus has truly made a triumphant entry into our hearts, he'll stay, he'll remain. As his followers, we're to exhibit these same qualities so that the world sees King Jesus living and reigning. Riding with King Jesus isn't as glamorous as it sounds. No Cadillac included. There are serious implications for Jesus coming to town on a donkey. We like to talk about palm branches. They're cute. We like to think about a city rejoicing for Jesus. The whole Jesus on a donkey thing, it's kind of cute too. But too often we want to forget, as the late radio newscaster Paul Harvey used to say, the rest of the story. Turn with me to the part where Jesus draws near the city in Luke. You can uh, take your Bibles out if you would and look with me. Luke chapter 19, verses 41 to 44. What's the first thing Jesus does? The sight of Jerusalem. Do you remember? He starts weeping. He starts weeping for it. He starts weeping for a people that Jesus knows, King Jesus knows, will choose their own spiritual enemy's destruction and be a part of it over the peaceful kingdom that is offered to them. Luke 19.45, Jesus then proceeds into the temple not to give a victory speech, not to give high fives, not to shake hands among the Jewish status quo, but to drive out the ones who were turning a prophet in the house of the Lord. That's the very next thing. Jesus doesn't perpetuate his popularity by cozying up to anyone, the the religious or the powerful of the city and state. Jesus doesn't keep up appearances. Jesus doesn't bask in the glory of being who he was. Out of any person that's ever walked this earth, Jesus had the right. And he didn't. King Jesus' first act after his triumphal entry was to insist that what went on under God must be done to glorify God. That's all. No other reason. And so here's the challenge that remains for us this morning, this Palm Sunday as well. When Jesus rides peacefully into the kingdoms of our hearts, how will we respond a week later? Crucify him? 
Or will shouts of praise still be on our lips? Hosanna. There's an old uh, cowboy movie cliche. Maybe you remember this one. One, one, one gun fired, snarled another. This town ain't big enough for the both of us. When King Jesus comes to claim ownership over the kingdoms of our hearts, the cliche is true. Between you and Jesus, this town ain't big enough for the both of you. If you want to share in his eternal peace, you must surrender your life to him. We like to welcome Jesus into our lives. We sing Hosanna. We sing Hosanna at the time of baptism. But we must continue to serve him until he returns to us. Until we see him again. That's the challenge. We like to sing songs like Jesus take the wheel, but do we really want to let him take the front seat? We know what kind of transportation he's got. And when it comes to riding with the king, we must always sit behind the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Friends, I, I wish you have a blessed Palm Sunday today, shouting Hosanna, not just today, but every day. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we know that all the glory and all the greatness, all the honor, everything about heaven was yours. We have no concept, O oh Lord, of how great you are and how great your domain must be. And God, you chose to come to us to make yourself nothing, to live as a servant, to die for people that rejected you. Lord, we, we, we're humbled. We're humbled at your love and grace and mercy. And Lord, I pray that in our lives, wherever we are this morning, that you, you would continue to stay at the forefront of, of what we're doing. That this not just be a one day a week thing. That this not just be a, a when we've made a big decision for you thing, but every day we would remember you are king Lord we know that the time is coming in which you'll come back and claim all that is yours and we need to be ready for that day so I just pray Lord that every day we be reminded we be convicted what separates us from you, the areas in our lives which keep us from being closer to you, the times in which we've, we've grabbed control back of the, the, the vehicle that, that we're on and, and not let you be the one in charge. Help us, O oh Lord, to 
every day have Hosanna on our lips. Help us to truly call you Lord so that on that great day when you come and all things are done, you would know us all that's been prepared we can share into God we, we just praise your name today we just, we just lift your name in a loud hosanna give you praise, glory forgive us Lord for falling short be with us Strengthen us in, in all that we do. We praise you, King Jesus. It is in your name I pray these things. Amen. And this morning, if you haven't made a public decision, or a private decision for that matter, to make Jesus the king of your domain, we have a time of invitation. Maybe you've understood that this means giving it all over to him. But the call is to go down into those waters of baptism. Have those sins removed from you. Take on that gift of the Holy Spirit. Become part of God's new creation for eternity. If today's the day, today's your day to come forward, we invite you to do so as we sing more praises to King Jesus. Blessed be the tithe of us.